At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. I just love the opening of our show. You know, I'm always thinking that's just going to embarrass my guest or something, but it's not because there's plenty of rational thoughts, but you know, maybe, maybe he's talking about me. I don't know. This is Doug Crow from the author brand show. You're going to want to take notes because today I've got a guy on who's just blew my socks off when I started talking to him and working on his book with him. Um, he is a merger and acquisitions attorney and advisor. Uh, he works with a, uh, a bank key bank in uh, man, his, his resume, it reads uh, quite, quite uh, it's a long one. Uh, managing director at Key's Family Wealth Consulting Team. He leads a team of tech attorneys and M&A advisors. They integrate a wide range of like business and tax matters, but they focus on transaction and transition analysis, structuring. Basically, if you want to sell your company, you got to call this guy first because most likely if you don't talk to somebody like him, you're going to mess up in one way or another. And it's funny because most things that we think about when we want to grow and build and sell a company are not the same skills and traits and things that we need when we go to exit. They're different skill sets. Um, so he's, he's an author. Um, he has, um, past decade, he's done more than $8 billion, $8 billion in transactions and private offerings of equity and debt and mergers, acquisitions, reorganizations, spinoffs, mostly for closely held and family-owned businesses. Um, he's got a bunch of degrees. I'm not going to go through all those. Um, he's a, he basically, in civic and, public, and professional affairs, he's a volunteer. Uh, for the uh, uh, Pennsylvania Innocence Project and as an executive in residence at the Duke, oh, I can't even pronounce that, Jeff. We'll get to that. Duke, I don't know. Univ School of Business. <laughs> we'll get to that one. He's also volunteered Girl Scouts. We'll talk about that one. Hey, welcome to my show today, Mr. Jeff Getty. How do I pronounce that thing? That it's Duquesne. It's a French word. Oh, my. You know, why can't they just spell it the phonetically? You know, du Duquesne. Yeah. Duquesne. Well, All right. I didn't come up with it, Doug, but thanks for I, having I me. I appreciate it. I don't I don't blame. You're you're a very learned man and you've got a lot of experience. And man, the the things that we've talked about in the past on this uh MA world has been life changing and very illuminating to me. But tell our, our viewers and listeners what they're gonna get out of our, our conversation today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. But first, I got to tell you, I, I do a lot of uh, speaking. And I get introduced a lot. Yeah. And it's the first time I've ever seen an introduction that started off with a scene from Billy Madison. Is that what that yeah, was from? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Love the movie. Love the actor. So uh, thank you. Uh, I, I, you're very welcome. I just love thinking of coherent thoughts. And like, it was just so funny when I had a longer, a longer intro with that. There was some more things in there, but it was just too long for the show. So I just put that clip on there, and I just look for the per, the guest's view, face when I see that to go. Talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> so no, we know we have some valuable things here today in the uh, merger and acquisitions and and uh, transition field. So tell us what the the big the big payoffs are going to be here today. Yeah, so I think the title of the book says a lot. It's the descent is the real climb. Successful business transitions and transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, been doing this work for twenty six years, and the goal of the book was less of a nuts and bolts, dry, boring how to, and more of a how to based on stories, successes, challenges, maybe some mm -hmm. failures in there uh, mm -hmm. for business owners to learn from. Because I think most people learn better by being able to hear stories or read stories and put themselves into the story and start to see where things align or don't align. And that's yeah. really how I run the practice. 
Uh, mm-hmm. People have heard me speak or like, I love the stories. I'm like, I got thousands of them. Let's talk more. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. super fun. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the premise is like, you know, somebody who builds a company up or maybe inherits one or whatnot, at some point they might want to sell it or as you say, transition. So let's go down that a little bit. Like why do some people say, Hey, don't talk about selling. Cause you might not, you might actually do a transition. What's the difference? Yeah. So very specific language here, right? Transitions to me uh, are generally talking about internal transfers, right? So it's either selling or gifting to children, you know, next generation or selling or somehow transitioning management ownership and control to management or employees. So things like uh, leverage management buyouts, ESOPs, you know, strategies like that versus a transaction and transactions to me or how I generally define them are sales to third parties. Uh, so when you think about selling to a strategic buyer, single family offices, PE groups, right? The, the kind of the sexy piece of the business that people talk about a lot, that is by definition a transaction. And um, in my experience, like I said, I've been doing this 26 years, we anticipate on any particular series of clients that we would see about 70 to 75% will go down the path of transaction today versus the remaining 20 odd percent would do some sort of transition. Years ago, it was a different mix. A lot of communities had a lot more transitions, but today, and there's a lot of factors behind that, I would expect transaction more often than transition. But even if it's a, a transaction, um, from what I've learned, there it's not just cut and dry like best price. There's a bunch of yeah. other things in play here. So can you give us some ideas on why they want to not always just focus on the price? Yeah, I think most people kind of start with price, right? It, it's usually that's where people like, what's my business worth and what can I get mm-hmm. out of this deal? What do I need out of the deal? Questions and answers like that. As we get further into discussions with clients, uh, we find that oftentimes, I wouldn't say it's all the time, there's other factors at play, right? So I love to tell the story or a series of stories about clients I've dealt with who particularly live in smaller communities where their business resides. And they might be the prime, the biggest employer in town, but the ancillary businesses that support the employees they they hire or the business they support, uh, that it really is the heartblood, the lifeblood of that community. And the last thing they want to do is transition or transact to someone or some group of people who are going to rip that out of the community and Mm -hmm. take it somewhere else and and destroy the community uh, because they want to stay there. They want to live there. That's part of their legacy. So that's an extreme example. But uh, there's a lot of reasons why price doesn't necessarily drive the deal. But that's probably the biggest one. What's due to my, my community stakeholders? All right. So let's 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 give them an example of that one where the um the price wasn't the main driver for a guy's transition. Um, and there was something else in play. I know you know you got a hundred of these stories, so you can pluck anyone you want out of there. Yeah, so I just gave one that's probably my favorite. So I'll give one that I use a lot, but isn't taking my favorite. Uh, but it's a little bit unusual and it's it's a little different because that one, the first one's a little easy to get your hands around, right? Like it's my small community, it's my small town. I don't want to yeah. get it. Um, I had a deal a few years ago where the client asked us to help negotiate some offers from some private equity groups. Mm-hmm. And um, they selected the largest, the highest offer. Right. And we started going down the path of due diligence and uh, which is the process after you accept the deal where they get to come in and, you know, peek behind the curtain, look under the covers and really see what's going on inside your Mm -hmm. business and then renegotiate the deal. Right. So we're going through due diligence 
And my client kind of calls me up and they're, you know, beating around the bush as they're not happy with what's going on, which is kind of typical because people don't like having stuff dug at them. Anyway, long story short, uh, it turned out that his real issue was, in his words, I can't stand the people that are in my facility right now. I, I hate them. I think they're bad people. I think they're yeah. soulless creatures. And I'm not going to sell the thing I spent the last 25 years building to these people. I'm out. So we blew up that deal. We walked. And he... Well, how do you phrase it to the group, the, the, the buyers? What did you say to them? Um, the you know, we just sort of... So we started off with some real hard pushback. He wanted to do a soft approach. He didn't really want to rip the Band-Aid off and just started getting yeah. very difficult about some of the due diligence. But ultimately, yeah. uh, I used the analogy of, hey, this this feels like we're just going into, a, we're dating and we're going into a, a bad marriage type environment. And because of that, we're not going to move forward, right? Like, I get it. You've put some time and effort into this deal. Uh, yeah. There's there's some money that's been left behind for both parties, but we're walking. Yeah. We're done. But this yeah. is not something we're going to do. Um did they do they ask to like oh please honey come back or do they were they do they, they walk away with their head hold on um you know i think because we did a little bit of work up front i don't think they were too upset right at the end of the day the more time one spends in due diligence the more a buyer spends in due diligence the more money they're losing on the deal right because they're putting time effort and energy and expense so right. if we're gonna if we're gonna pull up blow it apart and walk away it's easier to just do it they did try to circle back around about six months later when we reopened the process yeah. and yeah. we just declined to even talk to them mm -hmm. uh, but we ended up going back to the number three price bidder from the original run uh -huh. uh, because from an alignment standpoint and a philosophical standpoint and quite frankly from a personality standpoint yeah. it was just a better fit and my client ended up selling to them staying on as an operator working for the yeah. private equity group and to this day is still there and wow. pretty happy it, yeah. you know being an employee manager employee whatever you want to call them yeah being an employee with a few million in his pocket that's a little easier to, to handle right i mean yeah, he can, he's got enough money to walk, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. at the end of the day, I think that's a different experience than an employee who has to be there. He's made his sure. money and he chooses yeah. to stay because he enjoys it and enjoys right. the people he's working with. Mm -hmm. what, one of the stories you shared, and you've done it more than once, I know this, is where somebody's um, about to sell and they've they've got a, um, somebody approaches them, hey, I'd like to you know, be, sell your company. Oh, yeah, because, you know, what do you, what do you think it's worth? What would you willing to pay? And they start the process and then they realize they're going to get they made made a wrong decision by giving them their papers or financial or something and you've come in several times and able to like dramatically get more money for the guy can you tell yeah. us one of those cuz i think that's brilliant negotiating we can we can do that without getting them you know it's a little bit of, you know, um, I, I hate to put it this way, but basic or I hate to put it, I will put it this way. It's basic negotiations 101, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where understand that about 50% of most deals in the privately held space begin with an unsolicited approach or unsolicited right. offer around a business. Uh -huh. And if you're a successful business owner, you see this every day because you're getting calls from PE groups or you run into, go to a conference and you see a strategic buyer that wants to talk to you. There's capital looking to be deployed in roll-ups, buyouts, things like that. And we have a lot of people out there trying to buy quality businesses. So if you're getting those calls, you're a quality business. And for whatever reason, maybe the owners had a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, whatever, they will accept that phone call. And they're off to the races, but they don't typically fully understand or realize that accepting that first call can have significant negative consequences. So one of my favorite stories 
uh, on this particular topic, which will, by the way, be in the in the book, uh, involves a, an, an individual who had a business uh, in upstate New York, and um, he was a target of a, a private equity group doing a strategic roll-up. So when you look at the map of his business right, right. around where the PE group was, he filled in a hole inside of New England or the northern, yeah. the northeast United States, whereby if the PE group bought it, they would fill in an entire geographic region. So very right. attractive. Mm-hmm. And they approached him when he was having kind of a rough go yeah. and said, hey, we love your business. We love who you are. Uh, we'd love to buy you. What would it take to buy? And he very mistakenly was very brutally honest off the cuff yeah. and gave an, a number back, which yeah. is probably the largest single mistake we see, right? You never in a negotiation want to throw out the first number. And yeah. he did. He threw out a range that was 9 to $11 million. Yeah. And lo and behold, when the private equity group came back with an offer, it was $9 million. What, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, what a coincidence, right? It's the low end of his, of his range. Yeah. And... It and was it, was, it a, was it a cash out? Was there any any back end money on there? Or was it just like nine million? No, there was no back end money. So from that perspective, it was a cash yeah. deal. They said they right. wanted to stick around about ninety days. So it wasn't an awful, and it really mm-hmm. wasn't an awful price. But right. I was introduced to him, and so I said, okay, I'd be happy to sit down. And so we went through our own methodology uh, mm-hmm. and came back and and said, look, we really think this business. As it stands, it's probably worth more like 13 to 14 million. Uh, Maybe it's not all cash, but that's what we think the true valuation Mm -hmm. is. And if we took a harder look, and this is the part where the art form typically comes into play, where this buyer, because if you looked at the size of the business standalone in that section of the Northeast was worth 13 to 14 million. When you actually inserted that into the hole inside the the, the strategic goal of that private equity group, it was worth more than that. It was probably worth more like 20 to them. So after a lot of back and forth, and I'll save some of that for the book because it's really a fun story. Um, I went to the PE group and said, look, we know to you, the buyer, this business is worth $20 million, right? Mm-hmm. On your chassis. That's the bad news for you. The good news is my client isn't greedy. He's willing to split it with you. So in that particular deal, we ended up getting 16 cash at closing, no earnout. Um, and think about where we started, right? Nine got up to 16. That is a huge win. I mean, that is that is a significant difference in that. I mean, I, I would love to know how did your uh, your client react to that when he saw his you know his his uh, money go up by that much more, like seven million more dollars, almost, almost double. Yeah, so I like to tell people it happened uh, right before year end a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and I, I got a nice card and a nice present from my client for Christmas. Unfortunately, the PE group was not so kind when it came to the card and present. I got neither of that, uh, but that's the nature of the beast, right? Now, he he's a great guy. He really saw yeah. the value of what we were doing, sure. very appreciative, and he's one of the go-to people that I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got a prospect I'm talking to who sure. wants to talk to someone who's had a successful outcome with us, uh, and he's like, absolutely happy to do it any day of the week, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. You're my guy. You absolutely got us the best possible outcome. Do you normally get cards from the PEs groups and investment bankers after deals? I don't think it's common. No, no, it's not. Which comes with the territory, right? I I like to, I really do view myself in some extent, and this is kind of putting my lawyer hat back on for just a second. Um, 
we're somewhat hired guns, right? We're brought in to do something very specific for a client. And we do that quite effectively and efficiently, which is going to rub people the wrong way on the other side. Right. But you, you know, I've, I've talked to you enough to know that you're just, um, you can, you can tell someone they, you know, they're ugly and then make them not feel bad about it. I mean, you've got this way about you. And it's just like, well, I've got good news and bad news. You know, the bad news is worth 20. The good news is we're going to be generous about it. So you're like, you know, it's like kill the cat slowly. It's really, uh, it's really good, good skills, man. So I, I will say this, and, and, you know, I've got a team that, that works for me. There's, there's actually now six directors that work on my team that do kind of the same work I do. Mm-hmm. And, and I tell them when I recruit them on, I'm like, if you love this work and you really enjoy it, it shows pretty quickly. And I think most people realize when you're enjoying yourself and what you do, it becomes kind of fun and engaging yeah. and the ability to, you know, navigate through some vexing potential situations. Right. Uh, you know, it makes your personality. If you have the right personality, it, it shows. And I, I like to think I'm, that's my highest and best use. That's what I like to do. So thank you for that vote of confidence. Oh, no, for uh, sure. Yeah, I try to make it a, yeah. a good experience, right? At the end of the day, yeah. um, it's more likely than not I'm going to run into P, the same PE groups, investment bankers, whomever, yeah. multiple times. Yeah. And I try to make it as collegial as possible. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, Clients expect me to get them the best outcome. That's what I'm going to do every time, whatever that's defined as for them. And that's that's a key thing. I'm going to, it's a recurring theme in your in your upcoming book is that you just say the word best outcome. You never told me the most money. It's always the best outcome. Yep. And that's not just in the um, the example of uh, you gave earlier, but like the ESOP you talked to me about, or my favorite one was when you you know you're playing like family therapist a lot of times in these family. Family businesses, right? Yeah, I mean, there's some great stuff there, and that's a that's a pretty big component. I, I, I'm guessing on a lot of these private firms who are transitioning is there's always fa- mostly family involved. Can you give me give me an example of like the most challenging one of those? Well, I'm not sure I could peg the most challenging one, but I can give you some examples of a few. Um, you know, so I, I often start this. Converse, this part of the conversation with, look, yeah. if I could redo my career, I would have been a psychology or uh, a psychology yeah. major when I was right. an undergrad or yeah. got a master's degree in it because mm-hmm. uh, family dynamics are, are, are super important, right? And, and, it, yeah. and it drives a lot of behavior, good and bad. Um, so walking into a situation, one of the primary things we start with, right? And, mm-hmm. and we, we really try to focus on four issues with clients when we first right. meet them. We want to help them understand what their business is worth first and foremost, both to themselves and to the marketplace. The second issue we focus them on is what is it worth or help them solve for? What do you need to take out of this? Whether you're transitioning it to your kids or you're selling it to a third party, what is it you, Mr. and Mrs. Client, Mr. and Mrs. Business Owner, need to get out of that transition or transaction to be able to afford to do the things you want to do for the rest of your life, whatever they are, right? Take a trip around the world, buy a new plane. I don't care. Just tell me what it is. And we'll tell you, does that align with what you're going to get out of this deal plus your other resources? First two questions. Third question is, how ready is that business to transition or transact to help solve those issues or deal with those issues? So you can have the best business in the world, but if it's not ready, it's not transition or transaction ready, you'll never get full value out of it. 
right? If you're too owner dependent, if it's too controlling, the financials aren't ready. There's a whole series of things we talk to people about. And then this goes to the last question we try to answer. How ready are you, the owner, and your family and the other stakeholders ready for this to happen? I've seen deals fall apart of my career for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's things like, well, we're arguing over working capital or we're arguing over something that comes up in due diligence. But the one that's always surprised me from the beginning of my career has been, you know what, at the end of the day, I didn't realize that my kids really wanted this business or I didn't realize that my spouse was, uh, uh, was not happy with the idea of me not being home every day, right? They really like the fact I go into the office. <laughs> Get out of here. Um, so, I mean, I could give you a host of examples, probably the, the fastest or easiest one to do. I've got very long-winded ones. The fastest yeah. and easiest one to do would be, I had a client situation a few years ago where mm -hmm. the owner was going down the path of doing an ESOP, right? Okay. Uh, which was from a financial modeling perspective, made all the sense in the world. From an alignment of goals and objectives from the business's perspective, made a ton of sense. It was like the textbook ESOP example. Yeah. Right. And where it fell apart was all of a sudden, when we're pretty far down the chessboard, the client says, well, I don't think I want to do this because my goal really was to make sure my son and my son-in-law ended up controlling the majority of this business which kind of flips an ESOP on its head, right? It doesn't yeah. really make a ton of sense. So the good news was it was salvageable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we ended up only ESOPing about 35%. So the tax yeah. benefit he was looking for, he got on about 35% of the deal. Mm -hmm. Then we did a structured long-term buyout with the son and son-in-law. So they ended up controlling. Right. Um, I like to tell people I learned something on every deal. That particular deal I learned to be really specific with family issues. Like you have people in the business that are family. I know you've been through an ESOP seminar. They told you, here's what happens. Here's how control exists. I probably didn't drill in far enough to say, is that really okay that they're the manager, but don't own the majority of the business? Because he said it was, I just didn't ask him enough times, quite frankly, to really get that flushed right. out. Yeah, very, very fascinating. The other thing you do, which is very um, important that people um, sometimes think about too late. I know that you have a, a longer runway to help people out with this. Is like, okay, say I spent 20, 30 years building my company. All of a sudden, hey, I got an offer. Hey, Jeff got me uh, a good price for it and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Oh, my God, it's going to be December. And I'm going to have a, like to say, a $10 million check there. I'm going to have to give the government half of that. <laughs> You've got some... Some really good strategies. I don't have to go into the details here, but if you give us a story example of how you or you know structuring things so that to reduce their tax liability has been uh, that's got to be important to these people. Yeah, it, it is, and you know, I, there's a lot of phrases people use to describe. It. So I usually say it's it's not what you you get, it's what you keep, right? Like at closing, you do get that ten million dollar jack, but what is it? What do you actually get to keep when taxes are due? Different right. issue. Mm -hmm. So I always tell people I cut my teeth as a tax attorney. I have a degree yeah. in tax. I have a law degree. Um, so taxes are an area I'm very comfortable talking about. And what's interesting to me is that in most situations, clients have a tax person or a series of tax people they work with yeah. that probably have done an excellent job for them up to this point. This area of transactional tax planning is 
fairly specific and in my opinion, very specialized. So in more often than not, what we see is clients will take it to their existing tax advisors and they'll say, well, based on the structure of this deal, here's what you'll get out of the deal, right? Here's what you're going to pay in taxes. Here's what you're going to pay in debt. Here's what you're going to walk away with. And if they're a little more sophisticated, a little more in tune or have been around a little bit longer, perhaps they might've done some transfers to kids or some level of estate planning and anticipation of a transaction. To us, that's our starting point, right? Mm-hmm. That's where we really want to dig in. Um, I tell people all the time, and I've been doing this long enough to you know, pretty much guarantee this result, that mm-hmm. you should start off psychologically with, in most deals, you're going to pay between 25 and 40% of the sale proceeds and taxes, right? Yeah. That's a, it depends what state you're in and the type sure. of deal and things like that, but that's a fairly safe number. Mm-hmm. That shocks mm-hmm. a lot of people. Right. Yeah. They're like, I didn't realize it was that much. Mm-hmm. And I usually say to them, well, what if I could show you a way to get that tax liability from, let's say, 30 percent, kind of a midpoint uh, down to 15 percent or 10 percent or 8 yeah. percent? Is that interesting? Yes, it is. OK. Mm-hmm. And then we just walk through a series of very specific strategic mm-hmm. tax ideas to reduce the liability. Now, at the end of the day. Clients might not engage in any of those or other some of those because it's either the the risk to get there from the IRS's perspective is too high for them or mm-hmm. they don't like limited access to the money or they don't like where the money goes after they're gone or something right. like that. So each strategy has its own features and benefits, limitations, things like sure. that. But I always start off with, look, at the end of the day, if your number one goal is to pay like as little tax as possible, I can mm-hmm. show you a way probably to pay close to zero. Mm-hmm. It's up to you whether or not you implement it, but I pride myself on being able to pull that together. Right. And what do you mean by um, um, IRS grist? I mean, everything you're everything you're doing, I'm sure, is according to their guidelines. Yeah. So, the, but different strategies, how they're utilized, how they're deployed, and the positions you take can be mm-hmm. on a continuum of aggressiveness, more or less aggressive. So, okay. I always tell people, there's nothing I'm going to tell you or explain to you or walk you through mm-hmm. is going to get either one of us in jail. Like that's right. a threshold. Like I don't cross. Right. But. And then we usually start with like, here's the tried and true stuff that mm-hmm. anybody could do if they knew enough about the Internal Revenue Code. It's really not that complex. This is very straightforward. It just reduces your tax liability. And then we start marching through into what I call the gray area. Like here's things that are going to start to, that are a little bit uh, unsettled law. So we're taking a position okay. here that yeah. gets you a great tax benefit, but if it were audited, the service might have an issue. We try to score that for people. So, hey, okay. is it worth a big risk to save $10? No. But is it worth a big risk to, to save $10 million? Well, maybe it is. Can you give us some examples of the the, 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 the white label stuff and then the gray stuff? Just yeah. So one of the things we do a lot of work with right now, which kind of surprises me, is uh, QSBS or Section 1202 shares, right? That's a, a type no of closely held stock that um and i want this is a very very simple explanation but you can exclude per shareholder up to 10 million dollars in gain on the sale of that stock so for certain types of deals with certain types of ownership um the number of shareholders each gets to exclude 10 million dollars in a deal uh we've done deal and this is like very clear law and we've done deals uh, where we've pushed it in a gray area where we've said, okay, Doug, you and I own a business that gives mm-hmm. each of us a $10 million exclusion. 
but we decide before sale, um, you know, I'm married, I'm going to set up a trust for my, my wife's benefit, yeah, right. $10 million in her name. And mm-hmm. I'm going to set up, I have three kids. I'm going to set up trust for each of my kids' benefits and yep. put $10 million of each of their names. Now, mm-hmm. that's not super deep grade area because a lot of people utilize that. But the further you get a field, the more entities or people you set up to own that stock, the more yeah. into the gray area you get. So. Yeah. QSBS section 1202, very straightforward. You get to exclude this amount. How far you take that gets you further and further into the gray. Right. Or something as simple as like, you know, the Clinton Foundation. That's a pretty good one, right? Um, yeah. Foundations. Yeah, using foundations, um, you know, there, there's the work that was done around like the the, the, the Newman found the Paul Newman mm-hmm. Foundation with his salad dressings. Yeah. Uh, the lender beggar family. They've done some interesting work mm-hmm. with their family office. Uh, some of this is very gray area. Some of the positions yeah. they take are gray. But the concept just yeah. for a second of can you move money into a private foundation and save taxes? Yes. How you do it, what position you take, how far you push that, that's where you start getting into gray. Area. Yeah. Um, make, it a, make it a real foundation and treat it like a real one. Uh, probably you'd be all right, I'm guessing. Yeah, for sure. Right. So, you know, we, we like to, to score things for people, lay it out for people in a way they can understand. I usually talk about strategy with people without naming what it is. I'm like, hey, if I could show you a way wow, where you okay. could accomplish X, Y, and Z and get ABC benefits, do you like that? And if they mm-hmm. say yes, then we'll do a little bit deeper dive and pull back because I don't want them right mm-hmm. away to hear foundation, charitable trust, <laughs> That's you right. know, ding but strategy. They'll, they'll Google it and the, and the internet will tell them something else like, no, 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 yeah, I get it. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about features and benefits. Let's talk about how this thing looks. Then we'll back into eventually what right. it's called. Yeah, yeah. And you have to, Um, I mean, I know the law has changed pretty rapidly and stuff, but you have to keep up with that stuff, right? Every year on the tax laws? Uh, yeah. One of the things that, you know, it's kind of funny when I was a, a law student, I often thought that, you know, I wanted to get an area of law where, you know, it's, it's settled and like you learn it once and then it's over. And I, and I realized pretty quickly as a law student, that doesn't happen anywhere in law yeah. and in tax law, it's really been an evolving, uh, mm-hmm. minefield over the years. Um, you know, the rules that existed back when I came out of law school in 1996 are in some ways significantly different than where we are today and so every year uh, not be, not just because i'm required to do so to keep my law license but i spend untold hours reading through uh mm-hmm. pe- other people's write-ups changes and proposals things like that and one of the best ways i i do it Doug, to keep myself sharp on it is i do a lot of public speaking and teaching mm-hmm. continual legal education so i can be on top of it because if you're going to talk to another group of tax attorneys you better have this stuff down and right yeah. so it makes me keep stay sharp and keep very focused on this is what's changed this is the impact and this is what we can do with it every door that closes a new one opens I tell people all the time, you know, hey, they're like, oh, you must hate it when there's a big tax law change. I'm like, no, not at all. It opens hundreds more doors. You know, sure, right. it closes others, but we've always found something inside of every tax law. Some better than others, but, you know, hey, they take it the way they come. As long as we still have the lobbyists writing the law source, we'll be all right. <laughs> and, and 
true. And the other funny part is people are like, well, does it really matter if the Democrats or the Republicans, it's their law? I'm like, not really. It's just different, right? They tend to approach things differently. But, you know, the Republicans are, you know, they're in power. They write it one way and we yeah. you know, change things to do that. And then a few mm -hmm. years later, the Democrats are, it's it's the nature of the beast. And, yeah. and you know, that's, that's a very to me, hopefully a non-political comment about where I, where I lean. Uh, but at the end, okay, there's always right. work coming out of no matter who does it. No, the big, I, I've noticed that the big, the big contributors always contribute to both parties. They're going to give the both, just play, they played in both games. You know, I was like, ah, whoever wins, I'm going to be in their pocket. So I got to hedge my bets, right? It's yeah. <laughs> door one or door two. I want to make sure I'm covered no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. If you got the means, I suggest that's not a bad strategy. Um, so if I'm, if I'm a business owner, listen to us talk right now, and this is gonna be a hard question, but just give me the, you know, some kind of summary or like takeaway, but what are like, like three or five things that someone should do other than calling you, we'll get to that in a second, but things they can do to prepare themselves for a better transition. Yeah. So uh, it's a great question. So let me take a step back and answer slightly mm -hmm. something that's a little more encompassing than that. Sure. I would always tell someone, unless they're sure they're ready to do something tomorrow, go to market, mm -hmm. do a particular strategy, that you should look at your transition or transaction options over a series of time. And what I mean by that is, if your goal is to hold on to the business for the next five years, that's great. And there's five or six things I could talk about that you would do to prepare for that event. But bear in mind that you really should also be focusing on the tomorrow and the next one to three years. And what I mean by that is I don't control, you don't control walking out of your office or your facility more and something happened to you getting hit by the proverbial truck, right? You should be, have a plan in place prepared to deal with that potential eventuality. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it doesn't happen. What's more likely in my experiences to happen is kind of, you know, Hey, I want to do something in five years and lo and behold in year two, something happens to yeah. my, my spouse, myself, my kid, where I don't want to be here anymore. So yeah. what are you doing to prepare for that eventuality or that, mm -hmm. I should say, possibility, even mm -hmm. with the idea in mind? So there's some overlap here, but generally I'd say this, you know, first and foremost, you should always know what your business is worth inside the marketplace because you never want to be caught flat footed where someone comes across and lobs you fat, the proverbial fat offer mm -hmm. or stupid offer. And you don't really know in context, is it really that good or is it mm -hmm. not? The second thing anybody should always be, you know, thinking about, prepared for, ready to do is this issue of not valuation, but the unfortunate eventual, the unfortunate potential of something really bad happening that caused you to have to accelerate your process, whatever. Oh, yeah. Right. Like that should be something on everybody's mind. So is your paperwork in order? Yeah. Uh, is there a, do you have a willing buyer to take over? Do you have a management team that can take over? Right. Uh, which brings me to my third point, regardless of whether your plan is to transition or transact, the key component to success is almost always going to be tied in with the strength of your management team to take over. Doug, if I'm going to buy your manufacturing facility from you, mm -hmm. my goal is to get you out of there as soon as possible because I don't want you there. I want to take over. And if I'm going to take over and kick you out at the same time, I need to have people in place that can help me manage that and run that. I need a production supervisor that can do X. I need the salespeople to stay on board. I need, you know, the office people to stay on board. So really should be focused on how to make myself an inconsequential owner, which is a very fancy yeah. way of saying I can walk out of here tomorrow, whether it's because I'm sick, I'm tired, or 
um, I just decide to sell and somebody else can step in and take over and take the business to the next level. If you're not thinking along those lines, you're not getting transition or transaction ready. And it's going to cost you either a lot more money to have somebody in and try to do it quickly before you're ready to do something or it's, going to, it's just going to pop up on you. You don't have time to do it. It's going to cost you in the actual transaction. That's, I guess uh, that's yeah, great I guess. advice. Yeah, that's good. Because a lot of people thinking like I have to have audit books. I've got to have the place. You know, we talked about some places which weren't like cleaned up and stuff. But the mindset of it, you know, can you walk away? Is it is it transferable even? If it's not yeah. transferable, then you're not going to get, it's not going to work very well or very well for you. Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up the other interesting ones, right? The traditional stuff you would typically people say, and I, and I agree with them as well. Is your place spruced up? Is it ready to go? Does it look good if somebody was to come in? You know, things like that. Those are important. Are your books in order? Like that costs you something, but those are e quite frankly, easier to fix usually than the, oh, I've never let my management team do anything without me. And now yeah. I expect someone else to come in and do it. I, I tell this story and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going on. No, and no, on. that's fine. Good stuff, man. But um, I, I, I had a, a meeting years ago with a client who uh, we were talking about this issue. And I said, well, you know, how involved are you in daily operations? He's oh, not at all. I, I engage my management team to do what they need to do. They go to the conference. They do this. They do this. I'm like, great. Uh, well, that's helpful. And I said, do you mind if I talk to some of your management team? He's like, no, not at all. I'm an open book. Go talk to him. So I went down the proverbial hall and talked to the first person. We were chatting. Very nice guy. And, you know, seemed to be very good management guy. And I said, hey, you know, Joe told me that uh, you're um, that he I'm sorry, that he's very hands off and you're ready to go uh, whenever. And he doesn't really oversee your shoulder. And he's like, really? He goes, I can't get a pencil out of the filing cabinet without getting it approved first. Um, or I was literally involved in, in a discussion with, with two owners a few years ago, yeah. and they said the same thing. We don't have anything to do with day-to-day -day negotiation. <laughs> and while I'm talking to them, these two brothers at separate times left on their cell phone to go take a phone call. And when they came back and were done, I'm like, I'm sorry, I just have to ask. We're in the middle of this converse, very strategic conversation about what we're going to do, right. and you both left me for more than five minutes to take phone calls. What were those phone calls about? And they're like, oh, we have a piece of equipment out on our yard we're looking to sell, and you know, we were negotiating separately against the potential buyer. I'm like, well, I thought you told me you had a sales manager for that. They're like, oh, yeah, but we don't trust them to do that. We do all of our negotiations ourselves. I'm like, okay. okay, you got a little bit of work to do. Yep. <clears throat> Yeah, no. that's not walk away. That's uh, that's that's very active. That's interesting, man. So much to learn here, um, Jeff. It's been great having you on the show today. How can people get hold of you? Uh, you know, easiest way, quite frankly, is to probably give me a call, which I'm happy to share my number, or you can okay. go through LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. But phone number is four one two three zero three four five two one. Jeff Getty uh, on LinkedIn. It's Jeffrey Getty. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find, but, uh, yeah, happy. To, I tell people I'm always happy to talk to anybody for at least 15 minutes about this. <laughs> uh, I do have a patience level. Yeah. Yeah. I have some uh, parameters. Yeah. Some filter. Yeah. At some point I'm like, okay, we're going to do something together. You're just trying to yeah, download yeah. it. No, look to me, this, a lot of what I do is teaching and information flow. Yes. The best way for me to do that is to talk to people. I'm happy to talk to people and, and get a yeah. flavor of where they're at, what they're thinking, what they're doing. And is there a way for me to help? If there is, I'll tell what it is. If there's not, I'll tell you who I think you should talk to. Outstanding. And the, his information is in the show notes below here as well, folks. So you can click on his LinkedIn profile, check him out. If you are a business owner and considering transitioning, transacting, selling, whatever your business, talk to this guy first before you do a thing, especially take a phone call or, 
or send anybody some papers because you're going to regret it if you don't. Jeff, thanks so much for having the shows. I appreciate you. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate you. Thanks you for your time. All right. And that clips the show today. Uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe below here to get uh, some updates, some free goodies from us. And that concludes our show today. We'll see you next time.